Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Casey Sepp, author of Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Welcome to Writers Forum, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you're, you're from Maryland? Yes, ma'am. Is that where you uh, grew up and before you went to school, did your, you know, high school and everything there? Yeah, born and raised here. And actually, I, I, I live one county over from my parents, so I, I didn't go too far. <laughs> well, you went pretty far education-wise. You went to Harvard. You're a Rhodes Scholar. And um, it says here that you were studying uh, at Yale Divinity School. Is that still going on, or what's that about? Uh, no, I, I was for a while at Oxford and at Yale, and I'm, I'm very interested in religion and thought for a little while I might want to be ordained, but then started to write full-time. So you changed your mind. Now, your articles have appeared all over the Globe, the New Yorker, the Times. Um, you've written book reviews. What what inspired you to write a book about Harper Lee? Gosh, it's a wonderful question. The, the truth is I've loved Harper Lee's work since I was a kid, and it might surprise your listeners who don't associate Maryland with the South, but the part of Maryland I grew up in is pretty agricultural and, and built around small towns. And so when I read To Kill a Mockingbird as a kid, I felt like it was a story I knew and that Scout was a character like me and so I really bonded with the novel, and I had the opportunity in 2015 when Go Set a Watchman was announced to go down to Alabama to report on Harper Lee for The New Yorker. And while I was down there writing that story about Go Set a Watchman, I found out about this other book she had tried to write, this true crime project that she had investigated in the 70s and spent a long time working on after that. So, well, four um, years. Be, <laughs> that yeah, is a long time. This, How did you this, go about it? So the same way I've gone about any other reporting, you know, you really just try and find anybody and everybody who knows something about the story. And in Harper Lee's case, you know, the people who got to meet her when she was working on this book, for many of them, it was the most exciting day of their life. You know, Harper Lee came for lunch or she came for dinner or she came to interview them. And so people had very vivid memories of her. And, and so I could fill out kind of her time in town that way. And Friends of hers in New York and, and around the country had saved letters from her during this period, so her letters provided a wealth of information. And the other part of the kind of investigation I was doing was about the original murder story that caught her attention. And I know that you covered the court, so you probably know a lot of what I did. You know, you write these information requests to courts and, you know, former employees and you write to police departments and state investigative bodies, and you try and see what materials are available to the public, and when you can't find the documents themselves, sometimes you can do a workaround by talking to the people who work the cases, because they can share their memories even if they can't share the documents. Well, and actually, she just passed while you were already starting on this, so these people knew her. Yeah, I was very lucky. You know, there were there were some people who cooperated from the very beginning, but I'm sure your listeners know Harper Lee was an exceedingly private person. And for her friends and family, I think, you know, they had all the pride in the world in her, and they wanted to talk about her, and they wanted to share stories of her life, but she was incredibly draconian about allowing them to talk with the press. And 
she really pushed her own brand of secrecy on those around her. So in some ways, you know, I was sad that she died during the reporting of the book, but it meant after her death, there were a whole new group of people who wanted to share their stories and who felt like, you know, what they had understood was they weren't supposed to talk about her while she was alive, but once she passed, then they could start to share the stories, you know, from when she was a kid or when they knew her in her early days in New York or, you know, when they knew her after To Kill a Mockingbird in the period when she was working on this true crime project. So, you know, it was it's, it's just one of those things. I would love to have talked to Harper Lee, but I did get to talk to a lot of her friends and family and people who knew her in Monroeville. You know, she actually spent a lot of time in the town where she was born and raised as an adult and, and then in Manhattan, because I think to the surprise of a lot of people, she lived quite a lot of her adult life in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. So it was a really interesting, two two separate and quite distinct groups of, of friends she maintained. And That was and surprising never... to me. I mean, I'm a big fan of To Kill a Mockingbird. I think every young woman like you thinks of herself as scout. I wished I had a nickname for a while. I was calling myself Jeep. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, so, right. So even people who admired Harper Lee, you know, because she was so private, had very little idea that, you know, she was actually going to Mets games at Shea Stadium and hanging out at Elaine, you know, these, like, storied literary institutions. And, you know, on any given weekday, she would be at the Frick or the Met or, you know, getting her books out of New York Public Library. So... You know, that was that was fun research. And, you know, she lived she lived about four decades in the same building. Um, but people didn't side. recognize her. She wasn't the kind of celebrity we have today. A lot of authors, you know, people recognize you walking down the street. You made a point that some people didn't realize she even lived right near them. Yeah, I think kind of the most surprising example of that. So, you know, New York is one of these cosmopolitan places. People come and go and for a little while, Harper Lee's neighbors in that building were Hall and Oates. <laughs> and it was before they were famous rock stars. But, you know, so I tracked down their PR people and I, you know, send this letter and I say, I'm just trying to confirm they lived in this building. And, of course, they had no idea. You know, there was an elderly woman who lived on the first story with them and she had a southern accent. But, you know, she never introduced <laughs> herself as Harper Lee. She never said she was the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. So some people knew. Um, but those people really aided her in remaining private. You know, they might occasionally get her to sign a book or they might introduce her at a dinner party that way. But, you know, they weren't carrying placards around town and she wasn't going on Oprah. So, you know, the author photo most people saw of her was from the 1960s. So very quickly, you know, she was inconspicuous and able to go about her New York life with quite a bit of anonymity. Well, you've really told three stories here. And the first story that you've told is sort of the book that she was going to write, um, The Reverend, The Lawyer, and The Writer. Tell us about The Reverend. This is the book she was going to write. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it won't surprise your listeners to learn that Harper Lee had an incredible eye for stories. And years after she had helped Truman Capote with In Cold Blood, that murder story out in Kansas, she clocked onto this story in a small town in Alabama, and it was Basically, a Baptist minister had been accused of killing two of his wives, a brother, a nephew, and a stepdaughter. And he was never convicted of any of those murders. In fact, some of them were not even officially declared homicides. But he collected life insurance policies on all these individuals. So there was a pattern and there was a motive that made the police quite sure he had committed these crimes. And after the last of those deaths, 
um, there was really just unrest in the community. And, you know, people worried that the police would never hold him accountable. And his stepdaughter was 16 years old. So it was quite a scandal. And he was the only suspect and he didn't have a very good alibi. And about a week after her death at her funeral, the reverend was gunned down by a vigilante. And that was in front of 300 people. And that's the moment that Harper Lee found out about the story because it actually got quite a bit of press. You know, it had been one of these local crime stories that everyone knew about in eastern Alabama. But once that murder happened in cold blood in front of 300 people, it made the national news. And some of the more lurid aspects of the story suddenly became newsworthy, too. So the reverend was a Baptist minister, but he was accused of being a voodoo priest. And that's why people thought he could get away with these crimes and he could constantly profit from them. So Harper Lee read about the case and, and then came down in the fall of 1977 for the trial of the vigilante. And she spent about nine months in this town interviewing the lawyers and you know relatives of the reverend and relatives of his victims. And she interviewed the vigilante. She really got to know the community. And, and that's the story she wanted to tell in her book. So the first third of my book is about those murders and about the reverend, the alleged serial well, killer. It's so, a book in and of itself, and you've done such a wonderful job. As I mentioned before, um, I've written several about trials. That was my specialty as a journalist. And it's remarkable that you did such research for something that happened, what, 40 years ago. Uh, I, yeah. I especially enjoyed, some people didn't think that, you know, maybe we'd we didn't know so much about insurance, life insurance. Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's who knew? Yeah, one of Harper Lee's great frustrations with this case. You know, she thought she'd found this voodoo murder story, and it actually turns out to be a lot of it about insurance fraud. Um, and, and I'm sure already some of your listeners are wondering, you know, how could someone get away with having policies on six individuals he was alleged to have killed? And, you know, part of the book looks at this period of time in the life insurance industry, and how easy it was to obtain these policies, how able certain individuals were to game the system. So you could have multiple policies from multiple companies on multiple individuals, and there was no centralized database, and there were no medical exams up front, and they didn't verify insurable interest and things like that. So the And also, excuse make- me, but the most remarkable thing that you point out is that the insured person didn't have to know that he was insured. Yeah, so without a medical exam or any kind of verification process, quite often what the reverend was doing was taking out a policy and having all the correspondence sent to his address, and he was the named beneficiary, but the person who he'd insured never knew. And I think, again, to kind of animate the terror for this community, you know, there was one piece of insurance documentation that I got access to for the book, and it was a company out west that was severing its ties with the Reverend Maxwell. And they send a letter and they tell him they're going to give him a refund of, you know, it's $2,100 or something, the amount of money he's paid into these policies. And you think, okay, well, he's just been paying for a long time. And the truth is he hadn't been paying for very long at all, but he'd been paying on over a dozen relatives. So we talked about the six he was alleged to have killed. The truth is he had policies on many other individuals. And I think some of the terror that animated this community was the fear that they didn't know who would be next. (laughs) And, you know, even that one document, you know, when I say many individuals, you know, he had insured an infant daughter, he'd insured his mother, aunts, nephews, nieces, cousins. You know, there was was really just this sense that anyone could be next. And the first wife, um, you, uh, you, I can infer that 
The second wife kind of helped him cover up the first wife, and then a year later, she mysteriously had an accident, and he collected yeah. a lot of insurance. So, a lot of times when I talk about the book, people want to understand, you know, why wasn't he convicted? And right there, you know, it's an interesting trial story. And basically, the police thought they had an open and shut case with that first death. It was actually the, the messiest of all the murders. They had a great deal of evidence. The reverend did not have an alibi. In fact, a neighbor of his was supposed to testify that he had been out all night and even even worse, that he had called home and lured his wife to the place where her body was found. He called and said he'd had a car accident and she needed to come help him. You have a line and, from uh, Harper Lee that I think it's my favorite in the whole book. It's a quote. He might not have believed in what he preached. He might not have believed in voodoo. But he had a profound and abiding belief in insurance, life insurance. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to get to it. But the other thing to know is, of course, the reverend was, was picking out these policies on his own. But eventually the companies started to get as frustrated as the police did. And they weren't just paying out these policies to the reverend. So the second part of my book is about this charismatic lawyer who represented the reverend for about a decade and he represented him in all the criminal investigations, but he also represented him in a lot of civil procedure. And eventually, you know, when the insurance companies started to say, no, we're not paying, the reverend had to sue them in court to get the policy payment. And one lawyer helped him do that over and over again and kept about 40 percent of the proceeds from those civil actions. And over those 10 years, you know, started to get a reputation not unlike the Reverend. You know, people started to call his law office the Maxwell House because they knew how much money he was <laughs> making. Um, and he'd built this new brick law office right by the courthouse. And so his reputation started to suffer, too, which is why when the Reverend was gunned down and he lost one client, he decided to defend the vigilante. So well, the vigilante you know, was related um, by marriage, it's kind of complicated, his step-niece or something, Robert Burns. I mean, yeah. he wasn't just somebody out of the blue. He No, not at all. So Robert was quite close with the um, 16-year-old who was murdered and knew her siblings, and to the point of worrying, he worried about her other siblings, he worried about his brother, he worried about all the other people he knew who were connected to the reverend. Um, and so, yes, Robert stood up in the in the funeral home chapel and shot the reverend. Um, but then the same lawyer who had defended the reverend then defended Robert Burns. And that's the cast of characters when Harper Lee came to Alexander City in 1977, she started to get to know. You know, she interviewed the vigilante Robert Burns. She interviewed the lawyer Tom Radney. And she started putting together the kind of book that we most associate with Truman Capote, but the kind of true crime story which digs into a community and, and tries to use a crime to tell you about more than just the crime itself. Um, but she never published the book. And, and the last third of my book is about her life and her appetites as a writer and what brought her to this case and some of the work she did. And then ultimately um, a little bit of speculation from those who knew her best about whether she wrote it and decided not to publish it, whether she never finished it. Um, you know, what happened to her after she found the story? Well, you make some points that people like me that are just kind of Harper Lee groupies but not serious researchers or anything, I didn't realize that she had gone to law school. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I know. It's really quite shocking. She was very well suited for this kind of work. You know, I think most of us know that her father, you know, A.C. Lee, who was the model for Atticus Finch, was a lawyer and that one of her older sisters practice law in that same law office. But the truth is, A.C. Lee, for a while, thought it would be called A.C. Lee and Daughters. 
And Nell Harper, you know, she got all the way to the last semester of law school before dropping out to become a writer. But she certainly, right, she had studied criminal law. She she knew quite a lot about how these cases made their ways through the courts. And, you know, she thought a lot about lawyers and their ethics. And I think that's why between Go Set a Watchman and To Kill a Mockingbird, it's why we get such a complicated portrayal of the criminal justice system and of the lawyers who, who conduct business within it. Well, and and it's led to such speculation. You know, she helped Truman Capote with In Cold Blood, but reading your book, I realized she she was a big help to him. Let's put it that way. Um, Yeah, yeah. You know, if any of your listeners get get on a wild tear and want to go up to New York and kind of, you know, look at where she lived and get a feel for her life, the truth is one of the most rewarding things I got to do when working on the book is look at her notes from Kansas and the New York Public Library. And you can go and look at them. And, you know, it's over 150 pages of these incredibly detailed notes that she made for Capote about their interviews and about the scenery and about the town and about the dynamics of the crime and the trial. And so, right, she she really did provide a lot of assistance to him. And then, of course, he took that material and went and, and wrote his book from it. Now, you've written separately um, and when uh, Go Set a Watchman came out. Um, about the fact that was it an early version of um, To Kill a Mockingbird? Um, some people thought it was a sequel because the time frame. Mm. Um, that was a, a huge controversy a couple of years ago. Did yeah, she really know yeah. that she was signing away the rights or did she really want that published? You know, it happened right after her sister died and... Yeah. And, you know, the truth is there's a whole chapter in the book that's kind of looking at Harper Lee's early years as a writer. And I think there was a lot of unnecessary confusion for readers. You know, when Ghost at a Watchman came out, it was talked about as a sequel. And it's certainly true that the characters, you know, time has passed. The characters are older instead of in the 1930s or in the 1950s. But there's there's really just no reason to think that it's anything but an early draft. And there's quite a lot of documentation from the files of her early literary agents and some of her own correspondence from the period. Even though the time period is later, she wrote that version first. You know, she delivered it to her agents and to her editor in 1957 and then spent quite a few years shaping the material that actually became published under To Kill a Mockingbird. And she didn't edit or revise Ghost at a Watchman. So I, I like to talk about it as a kind of literary time capsule. You know, it's it's not as beautiful a book as Mockingbird. And, you know, the, the plot is complicated and the kind of structure is messy. So I just think it's important, you know, not to think that, you know, Harper Lee, after decades of refining her craft as a writer, put that book together. You know, it was the very first attempt she ever made at writing a novel. Well, also, the um, point of view is so different. I, I can't tell you how many people I, I took law classes, you know, as part of my degree, how many people said they became lawyers because of that book? I know a, mm. one lawyer who's named her grandchild Atticus. I mean, it's, it's just yeah. such an it's influential a, it's an incredible, book. I was about to say, it's an incredible book. And, you know, from the truth is the story of how Watchmen became Mockingbird is a very beautiful story about the relationship between a writer and an editor. And, you know, a very patient editor over a period of about two and a half years met with Harper Lee regularly to help her craft the book that that is To Kill a Mockingbird and to talk through some of the aesthetic and ethical issues. And, you know, I think that hard work paid off because you're right. It's it's certainly one of the most important books in American culture. 
And, you know, it's not just lawyers who found their vocation. It's a lot of people who figured out, you know, their independent relationship to diversity and justice and equality. And even if they didn't go into the legal profession, it made them think differently about people in their community who weren't like them. And over and over again, you know, I think there's a reason it's taught in schools. Over and over again, it leads to a kind of moral awakening for the people who read it. Um, And, you know, there's a very successful, there's a brand new adaptation of it on Broadway right now. I think it is a book that has cultural staying power. And even for the people who never read the novel, but saw, you know, Gregory Peck dramatize Atticus Finch's life on screen in the film, you know, even even those who've only seen the movie, you know, really do just have an arresting experience with it and, and, and feel changed by it. So it was really, I mean, look, I'm one of those people as a young kid, it, it did change my view of the world. And so it was wonderful to get to spend time thinking about Harper Lee and what happened to her after that book. And the truth is, some of what happened is, um, you know, those are incredibly high expectations for the woman who told that story. And, you know, on the one hand, we all just wanted another book from her. On the other hand, you know, she really lived under the weight of just exceedingly high cultural expectations. And, you know, the book was, the book won the Pulitzer, the book was a bestseller right away. You know, it it did a lot of things that novels just rarely do. (laughs) And I think poor Harper Lee was, you know, 34 years old when it came out. She had never published anything else. And she spent a lot of her life trying to figure out you know, either how to do it again or how to make her peace with the fact that she might never do it again. She did. She did say she you you put in there. She learned about five things from um, working on this book, you know, that she knew more about Reverend Maxwell's activities than than maybe. Yeah. Yeah, she writes this really beautiful letter about the Maxwell case. And yeah, she's writing to someone claiming she hasn't found enough facts to kind of turn it into a book. But yeah, the item on that list that I love so much is right. She says she has enough material for a volume, the length of the Old Testament. Um, But she also says there's no cassette tape long enough for long enough. There's no cassette tape in the world long enough to account for human vanity. And, you know, she says that because she was interviewing a lot of people who wanted to come off a certain way in her book. And, you know, she was using this cassette recorder. Unlike Capote, she was recording a lot of these interviews. And, you know, so Harper Lee would turn up and instead of telling the truth, sometimes I think people, you know, would tell the version of their life where they were the hero. (laughs) And, you know, when you're a reporter and you just want the facts, you know, it's a very it's it's a predicament and you have to figure out, you know, how to make sense of people's lives. And, you know, the truth is uh, the lawyer who represented the Reverend and then Robert Burns told everybody he was going to be the hero of Harper Lee's book. But, you know, when I interviewed Robert Burns, he thought he was going to be the hero of Harper Lee's book. And I think on the one hand, that's just how we all feel about our lives. We're the epic hero of our own life story. On the other hand, I think, you know, it's part of what happened in Kansas. Harper Lee was a very gifted interviewer. And she was an incredibly charismatic person, and I think she could make you feel like you were going to be the hero no matter what role you'd played. Yeah, you say they were fascinated by Truman Capote, but they trusted Harper Lee when she did these interviews. Let me ask you one or two other things, because we're almost out of time. Where does the title come from, Furious Hours? Oh gosh, that's. Or do you want to give that away? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. I mean, I can kind of. I hope. I hope folks will go and pick up the book, and if they do, there's a chapter called Horseshoe Bend, and that's one of the battles of the the Creek Wars that took place very near where this story unfolds in eastern Alabama, and. 
Harper Lee, in one of the few public lectures, talked about the Creek Wars and about the end of the Creek Empire, and she said that they happened in a few furious hours. And I think she was someone who was very attuned to history, and one of the things I try to do in this book is always give you the deeper history of things, and that's really a nod to her and how she understood the, the workings of the world. So that title comes from, from a talk she gave on the on the Creek Wars and um, her well, favorite Well, you put it in Alabama perspective. Historian. Maybe we won't give the whole the whole setting away because, you know, you, it really sums up why you yeah. use that as a title. One yeah, there's question. an emotional current to it yeah. that, right, if you get the chance to read, it will make sense. Page 255, folks. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> um, one other question. Um, you've spoken to Robert Burns, who um, is still living, and yeah. you've spoken yeah. to Tom Radney's, um, I guess, wife and daughter or granddaughter, yeah. I mean, a daughter and granddaughter to a lot of people who are related to Tom Radney and a lot of people who are related to Robert Burns, too. <laughs> but but, but of, what I wanted oh, sorry, to ask you is um, the Radney family claims or something that they have found some pages that might be from the book that she was going to write the part about Tom Radney, a few four pages or something. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so they have they have some pages that um, Harper Lee gave to Tom. They also have a page of Harper Lee's notes. So I mentioned those notes in in New York. They actually have a page from January 1978. You know, Harper Lee is in the thick of this work, and she's interviewing one of the first Mrs. Maxwell's sisters. And you know, it's identical to the notes in New York. So they have those things, and they have you know letters between Harper Lee and Tom Radney because they stayed in touch for many years, even after it seemed like she might never publish the book. And so they have a lot of materials related to the case. And um, actually one of the, one of the nicest stories about the book is when I first interviewed them, they were trying to get back these legal materials that Tom Radney had given Harper Lee, you know, case files and court documents and things. And the very last page of my book, the epilogue is a, is a story about them getting those materials back from the Harper Lee estate. So well, it's a wonderful a book. I'm sorry we're out of time because yeah, I no, could talk fine. to you for another hour or two and not exhaust all my questions. And it's being, being very well received. Uh, Michael Lewis, who I really respect as a writer of nonfiction, she, he said it's here in her descriptions of another writer's failure to write that her book makes a magical little leap and it goes from being a superbly written true crime story to the sort of story that even Lee would have been proud to write which I think is highly complimentary. I welcome you. I know you're going to be here for our um, festival. I think when we're airing this, it, the upcoming Louisiana Festival is this weekend, uh, book festival in Baton Rouge. And you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, the author Casey Sepp, author of a, a wonderful book, Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH.